the delight certainly rests with each of us this evening inasmuch as we've been granted the blessing and yea, the high honor of assembling in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this afternoon. Indeed, as we come together at this time, may I again say that we as always are very mindful of our membership at Pippin and yet so many other guests and friends and associates and neighbors have come our way. We truly are thankful for your presence. You are a blessing to us, and we hope that our worship will also be an encouragement to you. It is the case that tonight we're going to give thought to an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, by the very mention of that wording, I'm sure that our mind, probably unanimously among all of us, races to the most famous Ethiopian eunuch in all the Bible. Acts chapter 8 lists for us in wonderful detail a New Testament example wherein Philip joined himself to a chariot, preached to this Ethiopian eunuch, this nobleman. And wasn't it true that inasmuch as he preached Jesus to that nobleman, it was the nobleman who said, here's water, what hinders me to be baptized? Acts 8 verses 26 and following. But were you aware that he is not the only Ethiopian eunuch in the Bible? There's another one. And our lesson tonight will focus on the Old Testament Ethiopian eunuch. If you would be turning to Jeremiah, we will cast a spotlight on chapters 37 and 38 in just a moment. But as we move in that direction, let me use this initial slide to at least point out that it's likely the case that we know less about this Old Testament Ethiopian eunuch. But I hope that by the time we conclude the lesson, we not only will be impressed by him, but there are several things about his choices in life that can be, really be very instructive to you and to me as well. The first thing that would seem to me fair to do was to devote a few moments of consideration of the setting of these chapters. They may be somewhat unfamiliar to us, but just a few moments may be a great help, at least as we develop some of the lessons here in just a moment. The setting is this. The nation of Judah found itself in some very difficult circumstances at this time. You may remember that God had commissioned Jeremiah to preach to them and to exhort them to repent, to turn back to Him, but they had had no interest in so doing. And for that reason, in fact, Jeremiah had pointed out to them that they were headed to captivity like this that they, due to their disservice to God, their faithlessness with respect to service to Him, that in fact they would ultimately be taken off into Babylonian captivity. And furthermore, that there for 70 years, that's where they would be. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 11. But as we arrive at chapter number 37 and 38, you might, at least for a moment, reflect upon the difficulty surrounding Jeremiah's preaching. And that'll be somewhat what's going to be highlighted here. It proceeds like this. If you could picture from a geographic standpoint, there was Judah, but down to its south and over what we would call to its west was the nation of Egypt. But on the other hand, if you go northward and over to the east, there was the country of Babylon. And these two were very strong, and here was little Judah right between them. That often made things very difficult because as those mighty forces overtook and conquered various peoples, often Judah was directly in the crosshairs and they found themselves under threatening conditions. As we start this lesson tonight, 
You may notice one of the first comments I asked you to note was this. According to the opening verses of Jeremiah 37, Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, which was the capital city of Judah. Babylon had already made its way here, and they were in fact threatening them already by besieging the city, surrounding it, if you please, with the intent to cut it off from all supplies and ultimately to conquer it. But thankfully, look at the next slide. That nation of Egypt sent some troops, and as they were moving in this direction, the Babylonians retreated. They were a bit concerned, you see, about their ability to fight against both Judah and Egypt, and so the Babylonians retreated. In that retreat, the people of Jerusalem began to rejoice. They began to celebrate. They began to feel that God's going to protect us after all. He's not going to let these Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar, conquer us. But the prophet Jeremiah had a different word to say. If you and I borrow a phrase sometimes we hear today, he burst their bubble. You may notice in Jeremiah 30, chapter 38, I'm sorry, chapter 37. Let me begin reading in verse number 6. Then came the word of the Lord unto the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Thus shall ye say to the king of Judah, that sent you unto me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army which is come forth to help you shall return to Egypt into their own land. And the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, shall come again and fight against this city and take it and burn it with fire. Did you hear the message that God told Jeremiah to preach? That army of Egypt that you were counting on to help you, they're going to return to their own land. And these Babylonians that have retreated, they're going to come back, they're going to destroy this city and burn it with fire. Now you know that the people didn't want to hear any message like that. You know that in fact it agitated them greatly to hear that the thing that we had hoped for is not going to happen, that the city is going to be destroyed. You'll note then the next statement. They were sufficiently displeased with Jeremiah's prophecy that in verses 11 and following, they became very angry at him. And I phrased it like this. Jeremiah was arrested and treated like a traitor. Here was a servant of God, a proclaimer of the word of the Lord, and yet the people were sufficiently dissatisfied with his message. They arrested him and they accused him of being a traitor. In fact, more than once in this book of Jeremiah, this great and bold prophet of God found himself often the enemy of his own people because he told them, you have not served God and you are going to go to captivity because of it. And you've brought it all on yourself. God loved you. He sent his prophets to you and you wouldn't heed them. You wouldn't serve the, the God of heaven by following what the prophets revealed. Therefore, near the bottom of that slide, the king of Judah at this time was a man named Zedekiah. Now remember, Jeremiah had been arrested. He found himself in the dungeon, if you please. And you'll notice that in verse 17 of chapter 37, Zedekiah, the king, had an interesting question for Jeremiah. 
Then Zedekiah the king sent and took him out, that him referring to Jeremiah, and the king asked him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from the Lord? Don't you find that intriguing? This king, Zedekiah, the king of Judah, now he sent to Jeremiah and he asked this little question, Is there any word from the Lord? I'll not read the succeeding verses, but may I paraphrase some of them. Jeremiah said, yes, there is, but you're not going to like it. And he reiterated the fact that you're headed to captivity because of your sin, because of your idolatry, because of your failure in service to the God of heaven. That's where the nation was headed. And so as you and I come near the close of that slide... Jeremiah again found himself in dire circumstances. He didn't just say what the king wanted to hear. May I suggest that to be a lesson in passing for each of us. As Christians, as those faithful to the Lord, we can't just be parrots that say what a certain political party wants us to say. You and I serve a higher power than that. You and I serve the Almighty God of heaven and what the God of heaven says, that's what you and I must do. Regardless what some government might say about it, regardless what some judge or otherwise might teach concerning it. No wonder in that regard, look at where Jeremiah found himself. They cast him into a hole. That was the prison in that day and time. Our prisoners today often find themselves in somewhat nice accommodations. They have a nice place to sleep. They have a workout room that they can go work out in. They've got a kitchen to provide them some hot meals. But in Jeremiah's case, here was a man who found himself thrown into the dungeon. It was a hole in the ground. Can you imagine being dropped into a hole? And the text says there was no water in it, but it was miry. So it's like mud, somewhat thick mud at the bottom of that hole. And so you couldn't climb out. It's somewhat like quicksand. And there you are, dark, cold, in this hole in the earth. All because he was faithful to God. All because he wouldn't say what the king and the others wanted him to say. May your conviction and mine be as stout-hearted and as strong and as uncompromising as Jeremiah's was. As you and I close that slide, let's now allow our Ethiopian eunuch to enter our study. I've now transitioned into chapter 38. Jeremiah, again, in this very dire circumstance, I'll start reading in verse 6. They then took they Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah, the son of Hamalek, that was in the court of the prison, and they let down Jeremiah with cords. And in the dungeon there was no water, but mire. So Jeremiah sunk in the mire. Can you imagine how unpleasant that must have been? Down there with whatever bugs or critters would have also been in the hole. And there he was, unable to get out. All because he was a servant to God. Now verse 7 reads like this. Now when Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs which was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon, the king was sitting in the gate of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech went forth out of the king's house and spake to the king, saying, 
My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon, and he is like to die for hunger in the place where he is. For there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Take from hence thirty men with thee, and take up Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he die. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him, and went into the house of the king under the treasury, and took thence old cast clouts and old rotten rags, and let them down by cords into the dungeon to Jeremiah. And Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said unto Jeremiah, Put now these old cast clouts and rotten rags under thine armholes under the cords. And Jeremiah did so. So they drew up Jeremiah with cords and took him up out of the dungeon. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. The nobility of Ebed-Melech. Let's now put some pieces together and learn some lessons about this Ethiopian nobleman and the first observation, the first lesson I would wish to share is this one. What might be some things we today, though so many centuries removed, can actually learn from Ebed-Melech? May I suggest the first one, right and wrong. Did you note the language that Ebed-Melech used? Revisit with me chapter 38, verse number 9. Ebed-Melech speaking said, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. The men who had imprisoned Jeremiah, the men who would cast him into the dungeon, the men who had treated him in that fashion, Ebed-Melech's assessment of their activity was this, they have done what's evil. Our observations will begin like this. Ebed-Melech had a clear-cut understanding of wrong and right, and what these men had done to Jeremiah was not right. There was no justification by which it could be considered so. It was wrong. He used the word evil. To develop that even further, you and I might now notice, isn't it true that we sometimes feel as if we live in a society that everything can be painted with a broad brush gray stroke? Situationalism can make anything all right given the circumstances. Ebed-Melech apparently didn't feel that way. This is wrong, and there is no way to rationalize it. May you and I be as certain of certain things as Ebed-Melech was, understanding that there are activities which are wrong, regardless what humanity might think, regardless what the overall tenor of society might be. It is for that cause that on that slide, I would ask you to note a few things. Isn't it true that there are those who, for instance, can justify gambling? Well, after all, doesn't it provide good educational opportunities? Who is it harming, really? And maybe in their own mind, they find a way to make that out to where, well, although many others choose not to do so, I really feel like perhaps it's okay. You and I shouldn't feel that way. We mustn't. When the Word of God has testified concerning things, that places the stamp of absoluteness upon it. Try another one that I've also included in that list. How often, certainly over the last decade or so, 
have you and I been presented the reality, look, if those two men want to get married, that's just their choice. Don't they have the right, let's say, just like black people several years ago had more of a direction toward gaining their rights? Well, shouldn't they have theirs? It cannot be viewed that way. For after all, it is not the same. A person's skin color is not that which he chooses. God loves all people, regardless of skin color. And He demands that, of course, one and all appreciate His truth. But there is something to be said. God has declared homosexuality is wrong. And no society anywhere at any time can justify or overturn what God has declared. It's wrong. Romans 1, verses 25 and following, paint for us a rather vivid picture of the unnatural character of it and how that it's included in that list for which the judgment of God will be sorely and severely seen. Wrong versus right. Ebed Melech knew the difference. And even though he was one of the eunuchs of the king, he knew that what had been done to Jeremiah was not defensible and that it was not right. May you and I today again, be as uncompromisingly strong in our real realizations that what God has testified, society can never change. And no circumstances can ever alter it. As you and I close that slide, isn't it also true, and I find it intriguing, that the same word that's used here with respect to the activities of those who cast Jeremiah into the dungeon, the word evil, is exactly the same word that is used in 1 John 3.12 for those who do not worship God as He is commanded. You put a piano over here. It is not just some arbitrary choice. It now has become evil because you have attempted to worship in a way distinct from and different from what God has said that He wants. Anything else you and I attempt to change in worship has made that worship not just a poor choice, but evil. What else might we learn from Ebed-Melech? The first one has been this one. What about the next thing that perhaps you observed as I read that text a moment ago? Revisiting verse number 8, Jeremiah chapter 38. Ebed-Melech went forth out of the king's house and spake to the king. Don't you find it intriguing that here Jeremiah's the one that had been thrown into the dungeon? How easy might it have been for Ebed-Melech to say, well, that's his problem. Let him deal with the consequences of this. But yet Ebed-Melech took upon himself the initiative. Jeremiah didn't ask Ebed-Melech to go speak to the king on his behalf. Ebed-Melech, understanding the wrongfulness that had been done, and for fear of Jeremiah's life, he went and spake to the king on Jeremiah's behalf. I've asked you to consider some of the thoughts again on that slide. Isn't it still rather easy to often desire to be uninvolved? That's their issue. That's their problem. It's none of my business. And certainly there's a time and a place to be respectful of that truth, but there's also a time and a place to realize that the initiative on occasion 
must rest with us, just as it did with Ebed-Melech. For after all, look at some of these examples. In Daniel chapter 1, verse number 8, separate apart from this example of Ebed-Melech, you may recall that Daniel also had been taken captive to Babylon. And there, you may recall the king's demand. There was a diet that Daniel and his three friends were ordered to keep. Certain things they had to eat because they wanted to be, in essence, fattened up so that they would look proper for the king's service. But you may recall Daniel took the initiative and he said, We are not allowed to eat such things, if I may paraphrase. And it was he who made the initiative. You let us eat what we desire, and then after ten days, you check our countenance. Don't you find it interesting that the initiative was taken by Daniel? Here it was taken by Ebed-Melech. What about you and me today? Do you and I, based upon the truth of the Word of God, find occasion to stand for that which is right, to take the initiative in those cases? One of the grandest things that's often mentioned in regard to the liberty that's enjoined upon us, we have the opportunity to cast vote for who represents us, who's in office. May you and I take that seriously and make effort to put into office those who uphold godly matters and those who take seriously things related to the truth of God. For after all, it is our obligation, at least it's our liberty to do so, Many peoples in other countries do not have that, that privilege. As far as that initiative, what are we told in James 1.22? For there aren't we reminded so powerfully and wonderfully that not just those who hear, but those who do that which is the Word of God. Be not hearers only, but doers of the Word. Faith without works, we're told, is dead being alone. James 2, verses 17 and 18 point out this truth to us. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show thee my faith by my works. The works in which you and I engage are those things which testify and proclaim so wonderfully of our faith. Could you and I not say, apparently, Ebed-Melech had conviction? And that man, Jeremiah, has been done wrongly, and I'm going to exert effort to try and see what I can do about it. He took that initiative. I hope you and I will take a message like that one to heart as well. As we close that slide, perhaps one final thing. Wasn't Paul also an example of one who took initiative in the statement of 2 Timothy 1 verse 12? As he neared the end of his own life, he pointed out the conviction that had motivated his way and his effort and how often that initiative had taken him to some very distant places in service to the God of heaven. Lesson number three. In addition to these two, don't you find it perhaps an almost obvious one at this point, but maybe time to cast a bit more spotlight upon it. There was a man named Jeremiah in a dungeon Ebed-Melech came to know about that, and he made this statement in chapter 38, verse number 9. My lord the king, these men, 
have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon. And he is like to die for hunger in the place where he is. For there is no more bread in the city. Don't you realize that the last person, there was already a shortage of bread because the Babylonians had besieged the city, remember? And surely the last people who were going to be fed anything are the prisoners. They would be allowed to die. And there in that dark hole, in that side of the earth, in that miry pit, was this man Jeremiah. And Ebed-Melech said, he's going to die there. Ebed-Melech had a concern for the welfare of Jeremiah. He had a, a deep-seated compassion for the circumstances in which Jeremiah was now fi finding himself. On that slide, I've asked you to develop that like this. Is compassion, is concern an attribute which Jesus expects of all of us if we are to be His servants? Was it Jesus in that fashion? Do you recall with me in Mark chapter 6, there was a crowd of people who had followed the Master and they'd been with Him all day. There were 5,000 men, not counting the women and children, and Jesus, it says, looked upon them, and He had compassion for them, fearful that they would fall by the way if He sent them away without food. The Lord had compassion upon their well-being. Today, are you and I urged to be people of care and concern and compassion? With regard to our brothers and our sisters in Christ, we weep with those that weep. Are we supposed to share a shoulder of concern, of care for those who are bearing burdens? Aren't we told to bear one another's burdens? Galatians 6 verse 2. Aren't we reminded to be those who in fact would look upon others better than we look upon ourselves? Romans 12 verse 3. Paul said it like this in Philippians 2 verses 3 through 5. He said, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. But what mind was it? The mind of humbleness looking upon the welfare of others. Paul said, look not upon thine own self, but upon the welfare, upon the matters concerning others. Do you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you lift up their names in prayer, mindful of the concerns that they're facing and the particular challenges that's theirs? with the earnest desire that they would be delivered from those particular onslaughts of temptation and maybe those difficulties in life. May I suggest that's something we each can do, but also to, in a very real way, do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6 verse 10. One last thing on that slide would be to appreciate, as I've tried to word it, the concern that sometimes clouds all of our allotments in life. Perhaps a time of famine is a difficult thing for us to fully experience because we may well never have had such a thing. But there are other issues in life. Health concerns, family turmoil, issues, and certainly the petitioning God's blessing and benefit can often be such a great matter of reality for deliverance and hope and well-being. 
Ebed-Melech was a person, and I would think it fair to say at this point, we have every reason to be impressed with him. Though an Ethiopian eunuch he was, and thus he had already been treated in some very challenging ways in his own physical body. He nonetheless knew wrong from right. He was concerned about Jeremiah's condition, and he took the initiative to do something about it. What about the next lesson? Lesson number four. This one transitions us to another text because this is not the last time Ebed-Melech is mentioned. But I would like you to know what the last one is. As far as I'm able to tell, the last mention of this man is in Ezekiel chapter 39. Go on over that passage with me. Let me begin reading in verse number 11 of Jeremiah 39. Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuchadnezzar Adon, captain of the guard, saying, Take him, and look well to him, and do him no harm. But do unto him even as he shall say unto thee. So Nebuchadnezzar Adon, the captain of the guard, sent, and Nebuchadnezzar, Rabsaris, and Nergalshadrezer, Rabmag, and all the king of Babylon's princes. Even they sent and took Jeremiah out of the court of the prison and committed him unto Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should carry him home. So he dwelt among the people. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Go and speak to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, The God of Israel, behold, I will bring my words upon this city for evil and not for good. And they shall be accomplished in that day before thee. But I will deliver thee in that day, saith the Lord, and thou shalt not be given unto the hand of the men of whom thou art afraid. For I will surely deliver thee, and thou shalt not fall by the sword, but thy life shall be for a prey unto thee, because thou hast put thy trust in me, saith the Lord." In a way, that stirs much, much thought in me, as I'm sure it does you. Did you notice who stated these words? While Jeremiah was still shut up in prison, the God of heaven sent a message to him specifically regarding Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian eunuch. You may notice that one of the comments made in this section of Scripture in verse 17 is this, "...there were some people of whom Ebed-Melech was afraid." Note the last phrase in verse 17. I use that to entitle this. Ebed-Melech had some real concern about what the Babylonians were going to do to the city of Jerusalem, but to him. For after all, he was a servant to the king. After all, an enemy nation would be likely to have their way with the regal officials and to do with them to some very unsavory things. Again, the text says, God speaking through Jeremiah to him, I know you're afraid of these people. Today, you and I could be rightfully fearful in the sense that we'd be rather concerned about what some people might do to us. Various nations of this earth have a great disdain for, for America. They have a deep-seated, strong hatred for us. And therefore, we might appreciate that if some individuals, at least in those places, had their way with you and me personally, 
things might not go well for us. May I say, there would be, there's reason to understand the times and to have a sense of what's proper and to know what others might well do. Ebed-Melech had that kind of sense, and I'm sure in the interest of safety, you and I could have very much that same kind of sense. But I would use that to say this. It's entirely natural to thus be mindful of what things can happen due to some things other people might do. But isn't it also true that the last phrase of verse 18 is this? I know you've put your trust in me, God told Ebed-Melech. Who ultimately, who finally, above all else, did Ebed-Melech trust? Oh, he was concerned about the Babylonians, but he was very trusting in God. I would suggest that that too would be a fine example for us. We might well have some great concern what certain men might do to us, but our final acknowledgement, our ultimate understanding of the highest power rests with the God of heaven. Did Jesus say, Fear not them which can kill the body? Matthew 10, 28. But I'll tell you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which is able to cast both body and soul into hell. And so just like Ebed-Melech, we would have fear of and great respect for God, even above what men might do. Is it any wonder that that kind of lesson at least reminds us of the fifth and final lesson of the evening? I entitled it Deliverance, and I'm sure you noted it as I read it. What is it that God told Ebed-Melech? God had said, because you've trusted in me and you exerted initiative and effort in behalf of Jeremiah the prophet, when these Babylonians come and I'm assuring you that they will, I will deliver you, Ebed-Melech. We don't know finally what happened to Ebed-Melech, but we do trust in God's promise. He did deliver him. When the Babylonian armies rolled over Jerusalem and ultimately captured that city and hauled away the captives, many of them, to Babylon, whatever they did to Ebed-Melech, it was not as severe, it was not as sore, it was not as tragic and terrible as it was, no doubt, to many others. Because if I could read it again, verse 18, put it like this, For I, that's God speaking, will surely deliver thee, that thou shalt not fall by the sword. Ebed-Melech, in some regard, was spared the same kind of tragedy. May I use that as the final lesson of the evening? There is an enemy far worse than Babylon waiting at the day of judgment. An enemy far worse than anything Nebuchadnezzar and his armies could ever do, because that enemy has the power to cast into hell. That enemy... That being, that great one, has the obligation, in fact, and he will rightly judge. But just as surely as God delivered Ebed-Melech, God will deliver all of those who are faithful to him. In fact, we read in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, the sure promise of God that God knows those that are His. Does He know you? Does He know me? If your name is in the book of life, He knows you. And He already has the certainty of the seal of protection and deliverance upon you. 
But if you and I falter, if we fail, if we begin to be disobedient and live habitually that way, then we will be rather different from Ebed-Melech. We don't have the promise of deliverance in a case like that. As you and I close that slide, I couldn't help then but close this lesson by going back to where we started. The New Testament Ethiopian eunuch, as impressed as we have right to have been concerning Ebed-Melech, we live under a different era than he did. We live under the gospel ministration. Have you been obedient to that gospel? Are you obedient to it today? Just like that Ethiopian eunuch said, Here's water. What hinders me to be baptized? If you've never been baptized, you need to. Won't you believe in Jesus with all of your heart? Repent of the sins in your life? Won't you confess His great name as the Son of God? And won't you be baptized for the remission of your sins? Don't you know that if Ebed-Melech were here, He'd tell you to. He'd encourage you to. He'd exhort you to. Because He trusted in the God of heaven. And although he lived many, many centuries ago now, his message, his lessons have pointed us that tonight, too, there is a wrong and a right. And how important it is to take the initiative for what's right, to do so with concern and care for others, to understand the consideration of proper concern, and to always realize that God will deliver those that are His, just like He did Ebed-Melech. Tonight, if we could help anybody in this assembly in your public response to the gospel's call of invitation, we want you to know we're here to help you. If you are a wayward child of God, why don't you come back to your first love? You know that that's what was encouraged at the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 verse 5. And if we could assist you by praying to God on your behalf, if you'll repent and confess those things with open arms, He'll gladly receive you back. Tonight, if we could be of help, won't you come? All together we stand and sing the selected song.